Hey, so let's talk for a moment about friendship. See, I'm actually a bit of an introvert, so friends don't come easy. Once I get to know you, I open up. But it's getting to that place that can be a real challenge for me. And since the place I get to know people the best is where I work, that's always been where my circle of friends has been found. Well, I've been out of work now for 13 months. And while a couple of those friends are great for a weekly Zoom to shoot the shit and grab a drink, the circle has closed in quite a bit during the pandemic. But something amazing has happened in the last few weeks for me. Some old friends who I haven't spoken to in years have reached out to reconnect. One of the amazing things about real friends is that you can go forever without talking. And as soon as you do again, it's like no time has passed at all. So my relief valve that I'm taking into the new year is this rekindling of friendships. It has warmed my life at a time where the days are darker and colder and helped inspire a little more hope for whatever the hell it is that comes next. I appreciate all of you friends who listened to Relief Valve and have allowed me to go on about what I think. I hope hearing what others all over the world have been going through Finding the common as well as the unique experiences has been insightful, and I look forward to doing more of these in a hopefully much improved new year. I may try to throw some stuff into the feed in the next few weeks, some moments from the season that didn't make an episode, but otherwise look for a season two sometime around the beginning of February. From me and my family, to you and yours, the merriest of Christmases, happiest of Hanukkahs, Kwanzas, or whatever you and your tribe celebrate. And most of all, cheers to a healthy and prosperous new year. Chris Haas is the Group Vice President of North American Sales Engineering at Oracle. He spent the first 12 years of his career at Hughes Aircraft Company, where he wrote test automation suites for the M1 Abrams main battle tank, and then later at Hughes Space and Communications, where he worked as a systems engineer supporting integration, system test, and launch operations for various missions, including the Earth Observing System for the Goddard Space Flight Center and launch vehicle integration and operations for the Ariane 4 spacecraft, as well as two space shuttle missions. Chris lives in a small ranch in Northern California with his wife of 35 years. He has two children and three grandchildren. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, Jeff, it's my pleasure. Good to be here, man. This is very exciting to me. Um, Chris and I have known each other for a very long time. We worked together uh, back in the 90s at Hughes Space and Communications when uh, I came back out to California. And um, I don't think we've actually spoken like this in like 23 years. <laughs> ah, Jeff, suddenly I feel old, man. It can't have been 23 oh, years, really? Um, I left Hughes in 97 and went to work for Disney. Yeah. And so it would be somewhere around, somewhere around there, man. That's but it's, crazy. But we've kept up over the years. We've kept up over the years, right? I, I remember when you, when you, being a much smarter man than I am, left Facebook. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and we've been keeping yeah. up on on Twitter. Yeah, and right? I, I mean, there there are days I'm not sure Twitter is much better, but yeah, Facebook had to go moons ago. Yeah, 
Yeah, I you know I I back I started to back off on Facebook, and I don't post a lot there. Um, as a matter of fact, what I typically will do is I'll go on Instagram and post a photograph and then push it to Facebook, um, uh-huh. just to share photos. But Facebook, yeah, you know, especially with my parents, my mother insisted on being on Facebook because it's how she could keep in touch with the world. And I kept trying to explain to her that you really don't want to do this. No. <laughs> plus, plus there's um, something, you know, the dynamic changes rather dramatically. I think when your parents start showing up on Facebook, like, you know, it's, that's, uh, that creates an odd system, right? Uh, yeah, well, it should. If you, if, if your parents raised you properly and gave you a sense of shame, <laughs> somewhere along the line than it should yeah yeah um so yeah anyway why don't you tell the audience uh who you are and what you do oh gosh well uh currently i run a pre-sales engineering team for oracle in north america um and, and i like to tell people i've had a couple of experiences in my professional career where i've gotten to work with just incredibly talented smart dedicated focused people Um, My first big experience, you know, really, you know, what I kind of consider setting the bar experience was at Hughes Aircraft. Uh, Jeff, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're you're in the rocket science business, building satellites uh, of various types, you're working with some crazy smart people, uh, not only at at Hughes, but also just the support organizations, uh, you know, did a lot of work with NASA. Um, I, I had, I was very fortunate to have been involved in a project uh, called the Earth Observing System, which was part of Goddard Space Flight Center's mission to planet Earth. Um, and, and you're working with some really leading edge technology, leading edge scientists globally around the world, trying to figure out how to solve some very, very difficult problems. And, you know, when you're around those kinds of people, it rubs off. It's it's immensely rewarding uh, in a number of ways. So that was kind of my first setting the bar experience uh, from a professional point of view. And then I have to say, you know, the, the work I do now, um, while it's not rocket science, uh, it is some pretty interesting data science, data management, you know, very large database kind of problems that we get to work with and solve huge analytics problems. And, and the team I work with now, I would put, you know, obviously different different domain, but I would put uh, on equal footing with the folks I got to work with at Hughes. Um, so I've got a couple of hundred folks in the organization throughout North America, and, and we have the good fortune of working with some of the largest, most notable companies uh, in North America to help solve their data management and database problems. And it's a heck of a lot of fun, Jeff. That's cool. I've worked with your products for many, many, many years, both hardware, because you guys also bought out Sun Microsystems many years ago. Yep, which is actually how I joined Oracle. Oh, so when you left Hughes, you went to uh, Sun first? Well, when I left Hughes, I went to a little boutique consulting firm that you and I both uh, had some experience with. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about that. I forgot about that. You went to work you went to work yeah. for Pencom. My goodness. Well, I was gone. I was gone at that point, right? Because yeah, I, yeah. I think we passed. Well, so my exit was my exit from Hughes was a little strange, right? I went from being a consultant for this company called Pencom at Hughes to becoming a Hughes employee because Hughes outsourced to EDS, I think it was, a large consulting company and kicked out all the little guys. And after working for like four years as a consultant, having a great time there, I stepped into a full-time position as a systems engineer and ran headfirst into the military industrial complex (laughs) and banged my head really hard. 
Yeah. Uh, and thing. as an employee, it was just a different kind of world. And so I lasted in the systems engineer role there maybe a year before I went and said, there's got to be something else out there. And, um, and that's when I discovered Disney and I spent 10 years at Disney. So there's an element of that industry that is all about making the simple, very complex. Um, and, and yeah. over days we did a really good job of that, Jeff. But so, yeah, so I left Hughes, went to, went to Pencom, left Pencom, went to Sun Microsystems. And then of course, Oracle uh, famously acquired Sun Microsystems. And so I've been in the combined organization now for 21 years. I think that's right. Wow. You've seen a lot of change in that time because the world is a different place. Oh, gosh. Um, so at yeah. what point did you relocate from Southern California up to uh, the Bay Area? Was it for Pencom or was it for Sun? No, it was for Pencom. In fact, that was one of the uh, attractive features. My, my wife and I had kind of had enough of the Southern California vibe. No offense to anybody who digs that, but it just wasn't no. our thing. It's okay. Um, and uh, so, so Pencom was kind enough to move us up north. And uh, we've loved it ever since. I mean, at the time, the, the kids were young. They're now both grown and married. And at the risk of, you know, making me feel really old, I have three <laughs> grandchildren now, Jeff. Thank you very much. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But, uh, our that. girls grew up riding horses and showing horses competitively and whatnot. And, and so, you know, moving up here allowed us the opportunity to do that. And it was, it's just been fantastic. Nice. Nice. So, you know, the world was rolling along as it normally does. And then February, March came along and COVID hit. How did life change for you as far as your job situation and then even um, your situation at home? Well, kind of interesting. So uh, I, I spent a lot of time on airplanes prior to COVID-19 making its grand entrance here to the United States. Um, I would fly, you know, 130, 140,000 miles a year just domestically. Um, and that I, ha I haven't been on an airplane since March. And th there was a period of time where it really kind of threw my equilibrium off. You know, it's I'm sure you're this way. I think you're this way. You, you get yourself into a cadence, um, you know, at work. There's yeah. this flow of activity that you sort of get into. And and uh, in, in general, every other week I could count on, you know, bombing up to the airport, getting on a plane. You know, I, I, I for me, I get into a routine. I'm sort of wet into one airline. I know which seats I like. You know, I know where the gates are. I know where yeah. the food is at Houston and, you know, Denver and all the airports. Um, and then all that blew yeah. up. And suddenly I find myself at home dealing with this thing called Zoom, you know, nonstop and sort of <laughs> waiting to try to figure out how the heck, you know, we're going to continue to interact with customers and, uh, you know, continue to run the business, quite honestly, without contact. But and the odd thing is, you know, from a professional point of view, it took a little time, Jeff, but, I, you know, the organization sort of got through that knothole pretty quickly. Um, and one of the things we spend a lot of time on with my team is, you know, resiliency, be resilient. You know, we, we work in an industry that changes rather rapidly. Um, and you have to be in a position to adapt to those changes. You kind of have to consciously say, I'm going to commit to a change and then see that change through. And as it turns out, you know, I think that professional resiliency sort of translated into, you know, some semblance of personal resiliency through COVID because you just, you have, you have to just make the adaptation and move on. It's that simple. There's, there's really not a choice. Um, but yeah, right. the, the world the world right. changed very dramatically. You know, the notion of 
face-to-face meetings with my team. I had this whole, you know, cadence of meetings set up for months uh, and all that just went out the window. Um, and, and I, you know, yeah. I don't know that it all translates that well to Zoom, the, you know, the, having 30 people on my Zoom, yeah. you, know, you know, is there a monitor large yeah. enough to, <laughs> to yeah. get everybody on? The yeah. answer is no. And it's just, it's just not the same. I, I was uh, fascinated to watch how the entertainment business, which I've been attached to for a long time now, uh, the problems that we always face on the production side of, you know, latency in, in accessing storage and networks so that mm-hmm. people who are working with images could get the data they needed fast enough. And we were always convinced that we could not do that remotely. You had to be as close to your data source as possible in order for it to work. And they managed to figure it out. You know, the, it's a combination of the moment in time, right? The networks are good enough. Though, yeah. if anybody from any telco out there is listening, please fix the last mile because it sucks. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, seriously, how hard? How if you can if you can make a network that big? I know how hard it is, so I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you can make a network that big, can't you make it work in my house too? Yeah, yeah, right? please. Um, and and can, can I pile on on yeah. that point for just a moment? Because we live in a very rural area of Northern California. Uh, could somebody please fix rural internet in the United States of America? I mean, yes. come on, people. Yeah. I I just don't yeah. believe the problem is that hard to solve. So, uh, I, I you know clearly somebody's got to put some money into it. Obviously, there's not the population yeah. density you know to drive the big bandwidth numbers in rural parts of the country. But for the love of all that's good, if there's one thing that COVID has yeah. shown us, it's that people are leaving big cities, and you, you've got yeah. professional people who, you know, like myself, do a lot of work online. I need good broadband internet. Come on, man. And I, and I don't want to wait for Elon yeah. Musk to yeah. get another 10,000 satellites in low Earth orbit, you know, to give it to me either. Right. Well, yeah, I'd like to be, to be fair. I'd like to be able to look up at the night sky and see stars and not just satellites because <laughs> right? that's the only way we can do this. You know? Right. Exactly. Um, no, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. The fact that, you know, so, uh, all of these artists now can be anywhere in the country and doing their job because we figured out enough about how to get the technology to work and the pipelines to work correctly that you don't, you know, you can now be a Disney artist who's living in Iowa while you're doing your work. Yeah. But that that's speaks right into what you just said, right? People are now going to start leaving big cities because they can now work anywhere because business is never going to go back to what it used to be. Um, there I'm, I'm expecting that when things open up again down here in Southern California, there's going to be a glut of commercial real estate and you're going to start seeing things like you saw in New York after nine 11, when skyscrapers in downtown Manhattan over by the stock exchanges, all of a sudden were converted into condominiums because fiber optic networking meant that brokerage houses didn't need to be down the street from the exchange anymore to do business. They could be right. in New Jersey. They could be uptown. And they had this glut of office space. I think you're going to see the same thing here, right? Because businesses will no longer create 10,000 seats for 10,000 employees. They don't need it. They'll have right. 5,000 seats and then you'll book your desk if you need to work in the office that day, right? We were we were starting to move in that direction. Um, I was, I was working for Fandango and Fandango was owned by NBC universal. And a couple of times a year, I would go back to New York, um, for, for meetings and I would 
work out of 30 Rock while I was there. And they were already starting to uh, create this. There are no fixed desks here anymore. You come in, you badge mm-hmm. in, you reserve your desk, and then that's your mm-hmm. desk for the day. And I think that's going to be the norm going forward. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. So I assume you are based somewhere in the your office is based somewhere in like the Redwood city area. Is that true? Uh, yeah. I mean, my, uh, my office of record is in Santa Clara, uh, just South of Redwood okay. shores, but, um, I rarely okay. go and, you know, I, I, I used to joke with people. I spent more time in our offices in Chicago than I do in, you know, the corporate offices here <laughs> in, in the Bay area. Uh, so yeah, the notion of an office is, is kind of, you know, and I think this is true for most people who live in the field and talk to customers a lot. Um, you know, what, why be in an office I, I, where I should be is out talking yeah. to customers, you know, and, and, uh, in the market as it were. Um, yeah. and it's, it's, so it's kind of interesting. I don't, I I'm with you. I don't think anybody's going to go back to, you know, the big, uh, real estate footprints, uh, from a corporate point of view, a lot of our customers are yeah. moving away from that model. Um, and you know, you think about the savings associated with vacating leased office, yeah. Uh, for a company like Oracle, you know, we have offices, obviously, in all the major metros across the country, some of them we own, some of them we don't own. Um, and to vacate yeah. the least space, it's it's a huge savings. Then you add on top of that, you know, I'm not on a plane for a year. Uh, and you right. multiply that by, you know, 30,000 people in North America. Uh, that's a that's a huge savings. So how this all shakes out is going to be interesting, but it's never going to go back to the way it was. I agree with you. And you, you probably have great insight on this. What about things like conventions and conferences and that kind of thing? Do you ever think that starts to come back again? I, I do. I think that will come back um, for the simple reason that there's a lot of advantage for customers. Like you think about Open World, which is our big uh, soiree, which was going to be in Las Vegas this year for the first time. It was the first time we didn't do it in San Francisco. Um, okay. but the advantage of a, of a, of a, uh, of a show like that is you gain access to Sacra Katz, you know, Larry Ellison, all the senior executives of right. Oracle in one place at one time. It's very, you know, the information can, can be delivered in a very compact way. Um, and I think, so I think there is an advantage an advantage for customers to come into that kind of a venue. Will it be as large as it was in the past? Maybe not. Uh, but I think those things yeah. will eventually come back in the fullness of time, Jeff. Okay, that's good because um, I agree with you. Um, I used to, for me, the conference of the year was typically uh, National Association of Broadcasters, also in Vegas. But it gave me that opportunity to visit all of the hardware vendors that I was doing business with at the same time because right. they were all in one place instead of having to you know, make multiple trips to San Francisco in order to meet with the, uh, with people or, or do that kind of thing. So yeah, good. Yeah. I look forward to that coming back someday. Oh, so you, you live up in Northern California, generally speaking in the San Francisco Bay area, you're not in the city proper. Are you very far out? Um, you know, I don't want to, I want to get you too personal about, you know, like don't don't leave your address on the podcast or anything, but yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, No. So we are uh, about 60 miles Southeast of Sacramento up in the Sierra foothills, uh, live on a small ranch. I I mentioned, I mentioned earlier, the girls grew up uh, riding horses and whatnot. Um, We used to live in the East Bay. Uh, I was going broke boarding horses. So we, we found a piece of property (laughs) that, that would accommodate, uh, livestock. And so we've been here for 20 years, I guess. Um, and, and it's been fantastic. Nice. And, and it's kind of, kind of interesting. I, I mean, people say, uh, 
you know, we, we do live in the sticks, Jeff. I mean, the kids were 20 miles to high school. Um, I'm oh, okay. Yeah. 15 miles from the closest grocery store, you know, the closest Costco is 30 miles away. It's so it's that kind of an environment. Uh, but in today's day, yeah. interestingly, it's kind of a feature, like there's a long list of stuff that I yeah. just don't have to worry about being here in the middle of the boonies. Um, and it's, yeah. it's been interesting to watch what's happened to real estate in the area. You know, we're, we're a rural agriculture area, cows, grapes, and, and olives are kind of the three things that, that grow here. And, uh, yeah. you know, you see, you see properties go up on the market and they're sold usually within 48 hours. And that's different. Like it wasn't that way, yeah. you know, two years ago, properties would sit on the market for some period of time because it's kind of a lifestyle location. Um, but now okay. properties are getting snatched up like crazy. It's, it's a little nutty. And that's people relocating out of the cities and not people coming into startup ranches or, or for correct. Correct. Uh, we've got two new neighbors, uh, one of whom, well, both of whom are in technology uh, that have moved out here. And, and it's one of them moved from San Francisco and one of them moved from San Jose. And it was just to get out of, you know, those compact urban areas. And again, it's it's a function of they can. So why not? Yeah, that's that's true. So in the cities, of course, especially in California, which has got its own unique blend of government in the way it operates uh, statewide. The cities got hit pretty hard at the beginning um, and then started to lock things down. Did you see COVID showing up out where you are and how was the general community reaction? Because that's something that I've spoken to different people about throughout the year that I've been doing this now. And, and I don't get a strong feel for what it was like in the really rural areas. Yeah. So great question. Obviously very different. And, and this is kind of one of my pet peeves with the general response to COVID. Um, so mm -hmm. very rural area. I mean, for me to socially distance myself from somebody, I'd have to go find somebody to be socially distant from. Uh, my closest neighbor is a quarter mile away, for example. Um, so, so very, very different kind of demographic population density. Uh, we have had COVID cases up here. Um, it's not huge. It's not, not like it's been running rampant. Uh, the, the, in general, the community has been very responsive, very respectful, you know, a lot of mask wearing, that kind of thing. Um, although, yeah. you know, I, I, I joke with people uh, that I live in the Texas part of California. Um, and, and some <laughs> of your list, some of some of your listeners may be interested to know that there actually is such a place. Uh, oh yeah, but, no, th there are vast swaths of California that are very conservative. Uh, oh no yeah, question about and, it. And I'm kind of in the middle of that. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, like the sheriff here is like, no, I'm not arresting anybody for not wearing their mask. I'm not, you know, this curfew thing. He came out very quickly and said, no, we're not enforcing a curfew. You know, you're all adults go on about your business and make the best decision you think you need to make. Um, you know, and it's interesting. Some of the businesses have said, uh, if you're not wearing a mask, you can't come in. And I think that's fine. Uh, the business owner gets to make that decision just as customers get to make the decision whether or not they patronize that business. I mean, to me, these are adult decisions Absolutely. that adults get to make. Right. Um, so, so I would say clearly much less impacted uh, than, than the more densely populated areas. Um, but, you know, again, everybody is worried about it. Uh, you know, we've got a fairly substantial aged population up here. 
Um, and obviously that's a demographic that everybody's worried about. I, I will share with you, my mother lives in an assisted living facility near us. We haven't yeah. you know, been, been able to physically see her since March. She's 93. She has yep. dementia. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so it's, you know, that brings its own set of challenges and issues, but, uh, they have had COVID in the facility. They've been able to manage it. They've had two outbreaks kind of at the tail end of one of them now. Um, and that's, that's kind of scary because those are the people that you worry about. Uh, you know, my wife's yeah. folks are in their eighties. They live in Southern California. So it's a very different dynamic down there. But in general up here, Jeff, I would say, you know, we're sort of weathering the storm. The, the biggest impact here candidly has been uh, uh, yeah. kind of the, supp the, the supply chain related issues. Um, you know, we went through the, yeah. the vacated paper aisle for, for an extended period of time up here. And, you know, we're sort of in the hinterland. So when you think about what it means to get supplies, you know, truckloads of groceries up to a place like this, you know, they're going to service the more densely yeah. populated areas first. And so we were kind of at the tail end of that recovery. Uh, hopefully we won't go there again. But yeah, I, I would say the community here, the, the other thing about rural communities, I think this is true in general, very tight knit. I mean, when there's a problem, yeah, the, the community really rallies around to go address the problem. And, and I mean, there are countless examples that I could cite. We've had some uh, over the years, we've had a number of local tragedies. Uh, we had a group of kids uh, get into a fatal car accident, <clears throat> killed three high school aged kids. Um, you know, the whole community came together, rallied around the family, uh, you know, financial support. Uh, you know, cooking meals, that kind of thing. And this went on for, for an extended period of time. So these rural communities really come together in times of crisis. And I would certainly yeah. characterize this as a time of crisis. And, uh, and, it's, and it's kind of yeah. warming to see the community do what, what communities like this uh, are, are known to do, and that is come together and support each other. That's great. That's very cool. It's the, yeah, the dynamic in the city, of course, is very different. And I have been a city boy my entire life. I grew up in New York. I moved to Los Angeles. You know, the closest I've come to being in a small space was I spent a month in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? So, and that's by by mid, by that part of the world standards, it's New York, right? That, that's um, a metropolis, so, brother, just to be clear. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I remember, I remember pulling in my first time coming across country to California and I drove, I pulled into Oklahoma City and I envisioned and you'll understand this. A lot of folks in the audience won't. I envisioned it was going to be downtown El Segundo. Oh yeah, right. This like <laughs> one, you know, this this little this little one street with all the different shops along it and municipalities, yeah. and that would be it. And it was like, no, this is a real city. Did damn yeah. it, you should start paying attention to what's going on around you. Yeah, it's um, a skyline, dude. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And and you know what? It it taught me to respect a lot of the rest of the country, right? Because it forces you to take your blinders off and realize that, holy crap, this is a big place and there's a lot of stuff going on and you should pay more attention to it. Yeah. Um, at, at the risk of doing a student body left into some choppy water, you know, I think you're touching on something just in the national ethos uh, uh, that is relevant. And that is this just tendency to ignore other points of view and other contexts. You know, we yes. talk a lot about diversity yes. in this country. And, and diversity has many, many flavors, right? Uh, geographical, life experience, uh, et cetera, et cetera, as well as, you know, some of the more traditionally well understood, you know, versions of diversity. And I think, you know, it's important for people to recognize that, 
you know, where I live is not where you live. Like I said, I'd have to go find yeah. somebody to be socially distant from. You live in a very densely populated area. And there's there's value in understanding those contexts, I think. Yeah. No, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the biggest – I'm, I'm, a, I'm a thousand percent with you, right? Um, I think that the biggest problem we have in this country is we don't get around enough to understand how people live in different circumstances because this – country is so large that each state is almost like its own country. That's yeah. one of the things I certainly experienced when I drove from New York to Los Angeles and I drove there and back. Uh, I've done the cross country drive three times yeah. uh, over the course of my life and I've taken different routes each time. And the, all of these places have their own unique cultures. They have their own unique way of, of living their lives and they even have different accents, right? Which we feel as we travel across the country. And we're all tied together by some some common beliefs and values. But yeah. everybody lives their own thing, man. And we should respect each other for that and find a way to have reasonable dialogue um, while we're going through it. We don't have to agree on everything, but we also don't have to hit each other with sticks. Well, that's the thing. I mean, disagreement doesn't mean wrong. It just means disagreement. And and I think there was a time when this country understood that. But and so I don't know if if it's a function of social media or if or if the country has actually changed. I mean, I sort of look at social media as, you know, Twitter is a confirmation bias engine. All it does is drive people further into yeah. their respective corners. Uh, and so I, so I don't know if if, you know, looking at kind of society through the lens of Twitter is maybe the wrong way to do it. But there does seem to be this sense of, well, if you disagree with me, you're clearly wrong and you're an idiot. And, uh, you know, your name belongs on a list someplace so that we can re-educate you. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's just like, what? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And for me, as far as social media goes, um, it's people, people think they're anonymous when they go on social media, right? And so because they believe they're anonymous, all the filters come off. And they go out and they say things that they would never say to you face-to-face in public. They would never behave that way. I, for me, uh, you know, if you go looking for me on social media, use my name because I don't believe in being anonymous, even on Twitter, right? And occasionally I make comments on Twitter. I try to be measured in the way I speak anywhere in public because I present myself as myself, right? I'm not hiding behind an alias or, or creating some weird avatar. When you find me, you will find me. Um, And that's the biggest problem. What's scary is people are getting comfortable in these avatars that they create for themselves online, and they're taking them out into the streets. And nobody should behave that way in the streets. That's, you know, you have to have some kind of measured decorum decorum to be in a society the the way you live. I, I agree. And I think, so I'm firstly, I'm the same way on Twitter. You know, you, if you want to search for me, you'll see my name. Uh, uh, and I yeah. also try to be very measured. The thing about Twitter, I've met some people, you know, air quote, met some people on Twitter uh, who, who are just hilarious. And I spend a lot more time yeah. interacting with those people anymore. Like I've, I've, I kind of went through a spring cleaning of my Twitter, you know, follows and got rid of a whole bunch of the political, you know, obviously one side agenda kinds of people. And, and boy, my social media life, if that's a thing has improved. Um, 
and, and I, I just think, you know, but to the point you were making earlier, you have to make a conscious decision to go do those things. Like you have to put energy into those things uh, for it, for it to pay off. And I don't know that enough people are doing that. I, and I agree with you on the, the social media personas bleeding over into Bye real life. And I think from my point of view, you know, I see it when people drive. Uh, driving yeah. to me has gotten a lot worse, <laughs> you know, over yeah. the years. And yep. I think it's people just have this, I'm me, I'm here, I'm going to occupy this space or I'm going to cut you off or I'm going to ride your bumper, whatever it is. Uh, maybe I'm getting old. I don't know. But the, people just don't drive well anymore, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, there's a, it's, it, I, I believe it was a generational thing. I think it started in the, probably started in the 60s, 70s. And we have a, we have a, a round of folks going around nowadays who think that it's their world and the rest of us are just traveling through it. Yes. Uh, you know what I mean? And so it's our job to watch out for them because they don't have to watch out for us because it's their world. Yeah. I like to smoke cigars and I will sit in my garage and I will smoke cigars. So I'm trying to be a good neighbor. I sit in my garage. I've got the door mostly closed. I've got a, a filter in here. But even so, mm -hmm. even if I'm sitting inside my house, mostly with the door closed, if a little bit sneaks out the bottom, it's a problem. And I'm, uh, and I'm at the point where I'm, I'm trying to be polite and a good neighbor because I don't really want problems with the people who live next door to me. But there are days when I want to, I want to look over and say, you know what? I'm sitting inside my house. It's none of your business. What I do, please go away. Thank you. Thank you. But, but there's that sense of entitlement and I, you come across it all the time of, well, but you're, you're getting into my world. It's like, yeah, but my world and your world like are the same world. So we have to find yeah. a way to work together. And I think that's yeah. just been a, uh, it's a problem. Yeah. I, I think that goes back to some of what we were talking about a little earlier. It's um, this, this unwillingness, inability anymore to understand nuance, subtlety, the other person's perspective, to, to have empathy uh, to recognize that different isn't yeah. wrong. It's just different. Um, and, and I think that's another example of that, quite honestly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. The, I agree. The other point I was going to make as it relates to just, you know, kind of social media and human behavior, you and I grew up in an age, I would endeavor when, if, if Jeff Rockland was running wild in the streets of New York and um, <laughs> one of your, one of your friend's parents happened upon you and your shenanigans, uh, th there was, you know, tacit approval for said parent to smack you upside the head and get you back in line. Yeah. I know, I know that was the case, you know, yeah. with my growing up, you, you know, it didn't have to be your parent. It could be any arbitrary parent. Uh, and, and I think we've lost yeah. that. There's this hesitancy to correct kids um, anymore. And I, th I think that was like a good thing back in the day. You know, not obviously it has its limits, yeah. but I, I, I think the notion of correcting bad behavior when it occurs, regardless of, you know, how you relate to the kid at the time, uh, is something that we've we've lost, and I don't know that we're for the better for it. Oh, I totally agree with that. Also, because um, your your kids would have grown up through this same kind of era, the the whole uh, the self esteem movement that came up yeah. in the seventies and the eighties, right? This idea of oh, you know, uh, we it's better to make people feel good about themselves because it it helps make them a stronger person. It doesn't, right? I mean, I. When I raised my kids, when we did things like organize sports, right, I, or, or anything they did, right, when my son, we were out playing t-ball, and the, they're like, oh, we don't keep score. It's all about, you know, 
uh, teamwork and and um, friendship. And my son would sit there and go, "Then why am I playing? <laughs> I want to win the game." <laughs> and and there's nothing wrong with that. I yeah. I was very very specific to make sure my kids understood, and this is a core tenant in how I work as a manager as well. That it's okay to make mistakes. You're just not allowed to make the same mistake twice because the reason you make mistakes is to learn from the mistake you've made and and move on from there. And so, you know, go and do your best. Try as hard as you can and recognize the fact that failure, while it happens, is not really an acceptable long-term outcome. You have to pick yourself back up and go out and make something for it. And I think we've created... Um, at least a generation that feels like, and, and I, I see it with parents with my when my kids were growing up, where it's like they'll be angry at the teacher because their child isn't doing well in school, but they'll never look inside to see whether or not there's something they need to fix in the way their child is interacting. Right. And I've always felt it's if if my child fails a test in class, my child didn't prepare for the test. And we need to fix that. If the entire class fails the test at the same time, then we got a teacher problem that we need to work yeah. out. Yeah. Um, but most parents don't. Most parents don't think that way. They, 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 their child is a precious thing, and must be treated like you know, like a Faberge egg with all the gentility <laughs> and protection in the world. Yeah. And and I'm like, no. If they fail, tell them they failed. Tell them failure is not an acceptable option, and make them go out and and work for it. Yeah, and I mean, I mean the reality Gosh. is, you know, you just I discovered a lot of stuff that I wasn't good at as a kid because I failed consistently. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so yeah. this is not my gift. I'm going to go try something else. But the point is, you continue to try something else until you find the thing that is in your gift, and 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 then off you go. And I, I agree, the self esteem thing, like life is a contact sport. You know, when you get outside that bubble of protection of your teachers and your parents and whatnot. The world is a very harsh place. And, uh, yep. you know, if you fail, you fail. And I think, you know, whether it's in the business world, in the political arena, you know, whatever, you have to put forth the effort. Like you have to prepare for things. You have to put the work in. If you fail, you, you, you know, uh, inventory the lessons from that failure and you apply them to your next attempt. But I, I agree this whole, yep. oh, it's okay. Everybody gets a t-shirt thing I think is, is not, <laughs> is, is not done well. Yeah. And it's, you know, again, at the risk of yeah. getting some choppy water here, this whole forgive student debt thing to me is kind of in that vein in the sense that now, firstly, I, I am not a fan of the federal government loaning money to 18 year olds to go to college. I think it inflates the cost of college just generically because all of a sudden it's not my money, it's somebody else's money kind of a thing. Um, uh, so I'm not, I, I'm just in general not a fan of the approach, but. You know, look, if you took out the loan, you took out the loan. We can argue about whether the terms of the loan are fair, whether the whether the cost of college is fair. And, and candidly, I'd be much more interested in having the discussion around why is why are universities costing kids, you know, 50, 60, 70, 100 thousand dollars a year to, you know, to get out of that to me is a much more interesting discussion to have than than, you know, oh, we I know you took out the loan, but we're going to forgive it. That's not how that works. I, I think that community service that can be applied towards student loans is a good thing. Um, I am also, I'm, I'm also a believer that there is a role for government in 
helping society along and making things better, even though we need to keep tighter track of government so that they don't keep wasting resources. Um, Because the purpose of it being there is so that we can function better together as, as a society. Right. I'm, I, I ride very much in the middle and I, and I think if, if I could, I would vote for like Dwight Eisenhower, if they would give me that as an option. Um, because, you know, I, I realized that back in that era, we taxed the living daylights out of, out of very rich people. And mm-hmm. then we did things like create the inter, the interstate, right? And, and we were able to do things like a space program that could put people on the moon, right? And I know there needs to be a balance in the middle of all of that. But at my core, I believe that it's okay for us all to contribute to make our quality of life better across the board. Uh, it just we have to find the right balance and you know somehow when 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 those peak taxes were 90 percent, somehow the rockefellers and the carnegies didn't go out of business they no, managed it, to survive it, it, it yeah i mean like I, i'm kind of a fan of a flat tax uh, uh i i think the tax code has just gotten so opaque and, and when you look at you know when you talk about taxing yeah. the rich even you know it's it's kind of I, I guess, but the reality of it is there's so much, you know, there's so much maneuvering that wealthy people can do around the tax codes that, you know, you say, oh, we're going to tax the rich. It's a great slogan, I guess, yeah, but yeah. without without kind of completely revamping the tax code and stripping it down and making it much more uh, easy to digest, I, I think, you know, it's, you're just, you're uttering words. It's like Green New Deal and cancel student. Yeah. You know, there's great slogans, but, you know, yeah. think through what that actually yeah. means make the tax code really rock simple, you know, strip it down to a flat tax and off we go. I think that makes a lot more sense than what we're doing today with all these, all these deductions and, you know, special treatments and, and all this stuff. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. All right. What, how, how do you, how are you feeling about the next six months? You know, Jeff, I'm, I'm a, you know, you know me a long time. I'm kind of an optimist. Um, I'll tell you that I, I try to spend a lot of time focusing on the good and in in spite of the fact that just you know generically 2020 has been something of a trash can for the world um you know we were blessed with with our second and third grandchild um i'll 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 share with you my wife had her second bout with cancer and kicked it squarely in the nuts uh uh, so there's a lot we have a we have a lot to be thankful for we have our health um uh, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but I am working and I'm working like a rented mule in the sense that I am as busy as I've ever been. Uh, That's good. It, it is. But, but uh, you know, I recognize that uh, we have not been as impacted by what's going on as a lot of people are. Um, and for that, I am I am deeply grateful. And I think I have an obligation because of it. There are a lot of folks who are less fortunate. You know, I mentioned we live in a very rural area. Uh, there are some folks who have been impacted here, and I think we have an obligation to to where we can help those folks, and so we try to do that. But um, I, I am I am generally optimistic, Jeff. I think you know we talked a little bit earlier about resiliency, and I think one has to be resilient in times like this. We have to find ways to adapt. I think we have to put energy into remaining positive and continuing to move forward because the truth of the matter is, COVID is here. Uh, it, 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 it is going to do what it's going to do in my mind. And, and we have to adapt to that. So, uh, I choose to remain very optimistic about the next six months, Jeff. Awesome. That's great. Chris, is there anything I can plug for you? 
No, this has been just a joy. I, I really appreciate yeah. the opportunity to just chat. I, I, this, this, the time has gone by very, very quickly here, Jeff. It's great to reconnect with you. You know, I've, I've appreciated your friendship over the years, and it's great just to have these discussions. I hope, I hope somebody out there benefits from it. Yeah, I, this has been this has been a lot of fun. I'm really, really glad you were able to find some time so we could talk. One last thing I'm going to mention to you before I sign off of this. I still, you gave me a, a, an absolutely wonderful letter of recommendation when I left Hughes, and I still have it sitting in the lockbox in my fire, you know, I have like a little fire safe lockbox in the house where yeah. we keep all of our important papers. And I still have that letter sitting in that, that uh, lockbox all these years oh later. My. So oh my it goodness was that, sakes. It meant that much to me. It was really, really beautiful. And I, and that's, that's how I feel about you, Chris. I'm glad we, we're reconnected and um, um, we will definitely keep having conversations. Sounds great, Jeff. Thank you so much. Uh, I love you, brother. Stay safe. Let me know if there's anything I can ever do for you too. 